0: We upload a new speaker every day and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app or go to NAPOD.XYZ if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day. I'm a grateful drunk and my
1: name is James. A.K.A. Big Black James. (laughs) <laughs> it is because of the grace of God good sponsorship people like yourself I haven't found it necessary to drink drug or use any minor orthochemical since June 11th of 1994 and for a person like me that's a serious miracle yeah. Right. Yeah. my little schmil uh, is simply what you heard without direction a person like me is like an unguided missile <laughs> something's going to blow up <laughs> um I've always found it um, a touching thing when someone like Jim or some other people you may know, Maureen and people like that, I see, you know, that are actively participating in their own recovery by working with other people or answering a request to come and participate in their own recovery. So to let you know what I did was I went to work all day. I came home. I took a shower. I cleaned up myself. I got in my car paid for my own gas, just to come to a place to tell you that it's a miracle if you're an alcoholic who is not drinking. And if that ain't worth you getting in your car and driving to wherever you got to be to tell somebody they can find a way out, then you're in the wrong place. And if you ain't got a sponsor that's teaching you that type of a spiritual attitude for what was so freely given to you. And, you know, there's some of those cliches and profundities that you hear out there sometimes that, you know, when we first get here, we're real smart. You know, and then after you've been here for a while, you start to kind of catch the meaning, even though it didn't come from the person. And one of them that kind of stick in my head is the one where they said, a a grateful drunk can't get drunk. And I didn't really believe that when I first heard it. But there's a lot of stuff that took place way before I got to that point. Because I want to share with you as best as I can for a short period. And I'm not one of those kind of speakers that get into teaching drunks how to bend their elbow. But to kind of help you to identify to me, I'll tell you this. Have you ever woke up from one of them nights and either you went to sleep with your clothes on or off? I don't know how you go to bed, but most of the time I had mine on. And you would wake up and you would put your hand. On your pocket, and there was some paper in it that crinkled, and you would reach in and you would pull it out, just a few dollars. And instead of getting a Taylor ham and cheese sandwich with a cup of coffee, you looked at if you had a watch, you looked at your watch, or <laughs> you kind of you know squintly looked out the window and assumed that it was around eleven. And you'll start walking down the street. You know, most of us started walking because we by that point I didn't have a car, and I would start walking down the block, and I and, and I would feel before I even got the booze in me, a certain sense of security. It's not I even ain't, ain't put it in me yet. I haven't even consumed it. But there is a certain emotion that came over me like I can get this thing I need. And I start to walk down the street and as I get closer to the to the place that I can purchase this item from, I will start to feel a certain excitement in me, no matter how bad I felt when I woke up. As I get to the liquor store, if it's summertime, I would open up the door and it was in the cool air condition would hit my face and it'd be like walking inside of a cathedral. I could literally hear the alcohol bottles, and and, and, and you, and you, and you looking around and and you, and you putting these nickel dimes and quarters together because, because you know you can't afford the, the one up there is the one I want, but I, I, I I grabbed the plastic one. (laughs) <laughs> and, 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 and as I'm online I, I, I begin to salivate and the cap and that wonderful American seal has not even been cracked yet and I, my mouth is watering and I'm anticipating and I go up and I pay the man and I grab hold to the neck of that bottle so tight that if God Himself tried to pry it from my hand, it would be the fight of his life.
0: <laughs> and I get
1: outside, and I want to. As soon as I walk out of the door, I really want to consume it at that moment. But you know how you know that don't look good. So I try to find a little hole, a little corner, a little something I can stand in, and and I'm trembling, and I I just I, I just got to get some in me now, and 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 I ain't even put it in me yet, and all this is going on. And I would take a swig, and it would go down, and it would hit my belly. And it was almost like an emotional boom. And the next immediate expression that came out of me was, Now, I don't know about y'all. If you didn't get that one, then keep coming. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever went to sleep and woke up in the dead of night? Forehead sweaty, hands a little clammy, reach under the bed, feeling around for it. Take a hit. And the next expression that comes out is and you fall back on the pillow for years and years that was the idea for me based on what what line of the progression I was on or whatever wherever I was at this point once I had crossed that line of being what they so-called call an alcoholic at this point because I'm not one of those people that's going to tell you when I was 9 years old and I took my first drink that I knew I was an alcoholic all I simply did was follow an example which was set for me by somebody who I saw consuming the elixir. My grandfather loved me to death. He'd he sit at the threshold of his door down south in a little chair and on next to the chair was one of those little wooden lampstands that he took an old tin cup and he cut it in half and he put a cigar in it. And he came home and he, he was a fun loving guy but he came in a little, little moody and he went inside and he came back out with this clear mayonnaise looking jar and a cigar and he lit it. And after a couple of squigs out of that mayonnaise jar, he became this fun-loving guy. And he, hey, son, grandson, you, I got It was great. And then one day he did it again. You could pretty much set your clock to him. And he did it again. This time he must have been tired and he dozed off. And I remember standing there looking at him saying, hmm, I wonder. And I went over and lit a cigar and I coughed and I gagged. and You know, that whole sick feeling you get. And then I went over and grabbed this mayonnaise-looking jar. And I took the top off, and I ooh, it was strong. And I, I kind of said, well, it worked for him, you know, because down south, you, t- you take all kinds of remedies that work, you know. They say, get, get that boy some castor oil. You know, you got a broken leg, and they offer you castor oil. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, get, get that boy some turpentine, You know, you don't know what you're drinking, you know. And, and I figured, hey, it works for them, and it works for me. And I took the top off, and I threw that corn whiskey back, and I was nine years old, and it burned going down. And I remember when it, when it took effect, I felt dizzy and sick. And, you know, back then, the adults thought it was cute, so they went, ha, 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 you know, and the whole world spinning. And I'm, I'm real sick. And, you know, they called me a little smart button, et cetera. Between the ages of nine and 13 years old, I was a kid that just went around, you know, stealing the drinks and this, that, and the other. And, you know, that whole glamorous thing that we do as children to try to boost that sick ego that we now try to defeat. And that's exactly what I did. I used to steal the drinks off the, off the table just so I can impress him or impress you. And that was all I wanted you to do was like me. To see how cool I am, see, see the risk I can take for you. And when you let me down, I became resentful. It's a very simple process. I can give you the long form, but that's exactly what happened. I would work double hard just to get you to like me. I would work double hard just to get you to say, come on and play ball with us. I would work double hard just to be able to come over to your house and play with you. Because like they said, no one knows loneliness like we do. And even all of y'all in this room, I would feel lonely. But as I sat back there, as this group's enthusiasm started to take place, I started to feel a certain fellowship that I didn't feel until 11 years ago. Prior before that, I didn't feel it. I've had opportunities where I was six months sober, got drunk after detox and rehab. I like the way the big book says it after my asylums and sanitariums. Because that's exactly what it is. When you think about it, I was cuckoo for Cocoa Puff sitting up in rehab. <laughs> they would ask me, James, how do you feel on a scale of 1 to 10? I'll look at you and go, 5-3! Because the reason I did that, you know, I believed in I always was a logical person. I always believed in cause and effect. And I knew that if I told you I felt bad, maybe you'll give me some lithium. Maybe you'll give me something that could calm this thing I'm feeling. And I will p- start playing the manipulative game. That's why I appreciate, sis, as short as your sto- your story was, you told the truth. Without that direction, I would have been lost. But it was hard for the person who came to me. And being that this is a sponsorship group, that's what I want to mainly focus on in my sharing. And, and, and I hope that the little bit that I shared with you up to that point lets you know what type of mental mentality I had prior to getting here. In my last debacle with alcohol, as somebody had read earlier, as every time I would, just like Bill said, I was a normal person in every aspect of my life except for when I had to combat with alcohol. Everything was normal. See, my first step may not appear to be like most people I hear talk about the first step. Because, see, I always knew that alcohol worked for me. And I never really could accept that when people would come up to the podium and say, I come to AA because booze stopped working. I'm a logical person. I'm going, well, if it don't work, why are you here? <laughs> so you can't, you can't hold me now. Cause I'm here because I want some more. No matter how much it's going to kill me, I want some more. And you're standing there telling me you're here because it don't work. Okay. Logic is good stuff. We like it. We still like it. But I could not give myself over to reasonable approach or interpretation because I couldn't comprehend, I come to AA because booze stopped working. And then the same person would say that, and then I found out they got drunk. And I'm thinking in my mind, well, it don't work. Why you do it? (laughs) If if one of my cars don't work, I don't try to start it and drive it. (laughs) So to me, if it don't work, why would you go and get it? Well, to help me understand that, what happened was, about four years before June 11th, I was the type of person. I grew up in Jersey City. I don't have to get into the ghetto story of the poor black man in the white man's world. And I, I don't need to get into all of that. Most of y'all who know me, see C- Jim or Maureen afterwards. They'll tell you how sick I was. They probably tell you I'm sick now, but that's okay. You know? um, the, the, the thing I'm saying is is that I could get into that story, but all it's going to lead you up to is what you what you what you going to already know. Because if you're anything like I am, just like just like Dr. opinion said, you two admitted that it was injurious, but over a period of time you cannot differentiate the truth from the false because you too believed that your drinking life was the only normal one. If you don't, like they say, reread the book up to a certain point. If you ain't convinced, toss it and go back out there. Don't let a little puking keep you out there, keep you in here. <laughs> hang in there, give it everything you got, like I shared with somebody before the meeting. Because if you hang in there and give it everything you got, you run out of options. And somebody can say, you want direction? You'll go, sure. Sure, I want directions. Even to the point of calling a big black guy big and black. (laughs) Cool, huh? I'll see you after the meeting. (laughs) Prior to me getting here, I had, grew up in Jersey City. I went to the, I went to a gospel mission called Goodwill and Noah. I had my first spiritual awakening. It didn't happen in here. I went to a, like Bill, like Bill did in, in the history of AA, I went to a gospel mission. They were doing a testimony service. And I had a spiritual experience. And from that point, all of a sudden, God touched my life. And I I can sit down and, and, and my fiance back there, my brother and them back there, and people who know me, I just all of a sudden fell in, the, in, in love with the Bible. And all of a sudden, God started revealing certain things to me. Now, I'm not here to press an idea on you. And if you don't like me talking about God, it's time to leave now. (laughs) (laughs) From this point till I leave, you're going to hear about a power greater than me. Because without it, I'm doomed. With all of y'all in here, if you admitted that you're powerless over alcohol like I did, no matter how many times I add it, multiply it, do trigonometry, whatever I want, I'm going to come up with one number at the end. Zero power. I can see here and tell you, oh logically, you look out, and you say, Wow, there's a whole lot of people in this room. So if I put all my faith in y'all, I should be okay. The truth of the matter is, my family run about as deep as this. And I'm blood. And they ain't have no influence on me whatsoever. But what did have influence is the truth. And the truth was is that I went to this gospel mission, I had an experience. I was there about nine months, and the insanity alcohol happened again, just like it says in the book. My, my, my reasonable thinking was on one side, and my insane thinking was on the other side, and they ran parallel, and my insane thinking went out again. So this time, I'm heartbroken. I did somebody wrong, and I, I couldn't go back to the gospel mission. I left my clothing, everything, and I tried to walk from Newark to Morristown. I ended up in Mountainside. The guy picked me up off the highway, let me stay the night inside the cell. The next morning I woke up, the next morning I woke up, and, and you know what you know something? It didn't bother me to take the night in jail. It never bothered me. Jail never frightened me. Jail still don't frighten me. If you was going for sponsorship, and I remember John Stern telling me, stay on this side of the table. Well, you would say something indirectly to me in the meeting, and I was ready to come over the table. And all everybody in there thought they were helping me, you know. You know, you know what your problem is? <laughs> and, and I'm sitting there tweaking, like I just was smoking crack, you know. And, and John looking at me like, oh, sit down, shut up. You know, because I want to come across, I literally want to come across the table. Because I'm thinking what you're saying to me is, is personal. You, to me, any time you looked at me funny in my old community, I had a certain feeling of distrust or something bad was coming. When I was in jail, they used to say, we used to have this little say, you, you shooting me a prison, man? Huh? You, you shooting me in prison? You know, you looking at me funny, man? A look based on my super ego would cause you to be in, in, in nothing between us but air and opportunity. Let me put it like that. <laughs> and I, I didn't understand for years, I couldn't understand why that kept coming up in me like that. Even, even in my clean and crazy period, I would have that. And at times, even now, if I didn't have this process or sponsorship, I would probably not know that I was behaving badly. A good friend of mine I heard share once said something very wonderful. Yeah, I know, I'm barefoot. And barefoot said something at a podium one day that shook my foundation. He said, imagine coming into a speaker meeting like this and I'm standing here with a bloody butcher knife, drenched in blood. And I looked out at you and said, yep, I just slaughtered my whole family and I ain't drink today and I'm a winner. (laughs) <laughs> and when he said that I'm, I knew people that were like that and I remember times when I was like that where I was behaving badly and sitting in your meeting thinking that I was sober well I was sober but I was looking insane you know, um, as far as dryness is concerned so what happened along this way is that now I ended up in the Market Street Mission it was almost like I had a second chance I stayed in the Market Street Mission for over a year and in there I had the counselors telling me about neuropeptides and neurotransmitters, dopamines, c- cognitive thinking. There was a counselor named Mr. Solomon, an Indian guy, used to come up to me and go, James, I, yes, Mr. Solomon, you are rooted very, very deeply in a strong state of denial. <laughs> I had no idea what he was talking about. But he, every time he would see me behave badly, he would do his hands like this. And I, I, I used to, I used to be angry to the point of tears in my eyes. And they used to go, oh, you know, that's how Mr. Solomon is. But I didn't get it then. So after that, I was in there a year. Naturally, I met somebody. She wasn't in the rooms. She was a girl in the front row. Church. And I thought, you know what? She's pregnant and I think it's only right that I'm tired of having children out of wedlock. So I married her. Three years later, a mask came off. Terrified me to death. Now, here's the part that got me in trouble. At this point, I'm three and a half years total abstinence from alcohol or any mind-authoring chemical. Most people appear sober at that point. I will come in your meeting. You go around the room. I'm, I'm an alcoholic. My name is. I'm a, I'm a drunk. My name is. Come around to me. My name is James. I'm washing the blood of Jesus and delivered. Believe it then and believe it now. The only difference is I got a practical program of action. And it is my higher choice of higher power, my choice of a design that works for me when, when all other things fail too. When I look at your humanity and don't catch the twelfth suggested step as is outlined in, in, in chapter seven, when I don't, when I don't get that, I can always fall back to that stuff that mom and granddaddy used to say: "Do unto others as you would have them do unto you." Would I want you to show up for me if I'm in need? Yep, I sure would, no matter how bad I treated you. Why can't you do this for me? So I, you know, I needed that stuff too. But what happened was I was a limo driver. You're gonna like this one. I'm a limo driver. I'm tall. I'm black. And my name was James. (laughs) I'm charming as hell. I got paid. Hello, Mr. Johnson. Your paper's in the back? Oh, I did put a light bulb in the lamp. You should be able to read your papers. Early in the morning, driving to the airport. He gave me big tips. Now, here's the kicker. I get paid one week. I got about $1,800 in my pocket. I'm three and a half years bone dry, sober, so-called. I'm calling down 287. I ain't touched nothing in three and a half years. I look up at the sign that said, 80 West, 80 East.
0: <laughs>
1: I didn't even have to tell y'all where I went, did I? So I am in the right room, Joe. And as I started traveling down 80 East, I'm talking out loud to myself as I'm talking to you guys. James, you're about to throw it all away. What are you doing? you living better now than you ever lived in your entire life. You have a nice little garden apartment. You got a clean home. You got food to eat. You got a couple of raggedy cars sit out in the driveway. You can come and go. You're almost respected by by people in your community and your neighbors. (laughs) What are you doing? I get down there by Parsippany. I'm still talking. I get down by Clifton. I'm pleading with me. I get down by Lodi. I'm sweating. I don't want to do it. I hit the upper level. Well, I can swear to this day, when I pulled up to that toll, that lady could see my lips moving. I just handed her the money as if it was just like yesterday. And I hit that up a level. Seventy-two hours later, I'm driving back. It's nighttime. I'm not under a euphoric state. And what I mean by that is it was hours since my last intake. I wasn't stupefied or under, for those who are a little more educated, I wasn't under that, that, that euphoric feeling. You know, I was kind of like fairly comprehensive because I was doing that other stuff along with the drinking. So by the time I simmered down, I was, you know, I could see which way I was going. And as I'm driving, I'm feeling this pain inside like I never felt a day in my life. And I truly had hit that place they talk about in the vision for you where I was at the jumping off. I wasn't under the influence and I was crying like a baby. And I drove a car from an embankment fairly sober. Wasn't no alcohol in me at that point. I wasn't drunk, I just turned the wheel. I watched the ride. I wake up in the hospital, I'm sitting there looking at a light overhead, and all of a sudden they bring me the phone, they said, James, this your wife, and I, she says, I mean, it was almost as if, if, if prophecy happened, she said, what are you trying to do, commit suicide? Check out the good alcoholic, I said, yeah, she said, you should have died, not that's that that wasn't bad. That was the greatest moment of my life because at that exact moment, I had a feeling that's still prevalent in my life today. I knew at that exact moment if I was to ever stay sober, it was between me and God. I don't know why. I ain't going to I ain't going to explain it to you. I ain't got to explain it to you cuz I stand here before you today a man living in sobriety. When people used to tell me, you won't be sober six months with that attitude you got. It. They said, look at you. You think you know everything. You ain't learned nothing the first time. Came back. They said, where are your Jesus now? And a little short, half Irish, half Jewish guy about this big was sitting in a meeting one day. And he raised his hand to share. And they said, oh, oh, here we go. Here we go. Big book according to John Stern. And I waited to see how he would respond. And he took this blue book in his hand and he held it up. And he said, for those who had to comment, when you write a book that saved millions of people like me, and he dropped it and it hit the table, he said, then I'll read it and I'll quote it. Until then, this one will do me just fine. And I went, <laughs>
0: "You
1: know, like, yeah, you know, that's the kind of guy I want to sponsor me. Because I want to straighten people out. So I go up to John after the meeting. I go, John, you be my sponsor. He went, no.
0: <laughs>
1: it was like, oh. It was like somebody, you know, you see them the, the laughing when he hit him in the face with the pie, that stunned moment. Like, no. And the reason that it, it, it shocked me is because most of y'all heard this. Never say no to anybody in AA.
0: <laughs>
1: and he told me no. I found something out a little later on. But that didn't stop me. Because John had what I wanted. So I got slick too. Said, mind if I call you? He says, I'll give you my number. Wrote it down. Next day I called him. Day after that I called him. Day after that I called him. And I kept calling him. And I would show up to the meetings where he was at.
0: Hi John. (laughs)
1: And you know what he called me for two years? Sicko. <laughs> Maybe I forgot to call him, tell him my name. I don't know, but John would talk to me like this. What do you want, sicko Well, I was reading this right here, and I don't know what. It... Read again. Call me later. <laughs> okay, I will read it again. I still don't know what it means. Get a dictionary. Click. <laughs> Seriously, it may sound cruel, but that's how he did me. And what it did to me, it, it created something in me that I had neglected throughout childhood, throughout school, everything. I neglected to do anything for myself. And John started immediately getting me out of that pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. For those who have difficulty with that, the big book says most good ideas are simple, so I'll simplify it for you. It means I simply couldn't understand the damn truth. No matter how you revealed it. We know it's true. It was pitiful that you could tell me the truth and I couldn't even comprehend it. It's simple. The word inconsequential mean I couldn't comprehend, I couldn't understand, I couldn't grasp. Demoralize to disregard what? Moral, M-O-R-A-L, Greek word meaning truth. I discarded this truth. As soon as you told it to me, and not me. <laughs> For you girls, y'all go, whatever. (laughs) And so, every time you would tell me the truth about alcoholism, that's exactly what it looked like. And there I was, dying, and I appeared pitiful. It's pitiful. It's pitiful to watch somebody die of cirrhosis of the liver, and all they had to do was stop drinking. You don't think it's pitiful? See one. That blood come pouring out the corner of the eye, nose running like blood running out the nose. You can see it drying up in the corner of the mouth because he keeps swallowing it back down. Mm-hmm. They got tubes in every orifice of his body trying to filter it and put it back in. Pitiful. And we sit here and I don't like, I don't
0: like Joe. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I ain't like her calling me big and black. <laughs> and I want a drink. <laughs> but I ain't like what Maureen said. I don't like the like fact they asked me to wear a tie. I don't like this, I don't like that. And I'm dying. So what happened? I simply needed to get involved in the steps. John was good. John said, alright, here it is, it's outlined for you simple. He told me the doctor's opinion, bill story, desert <coughs> solution, and more about alcoholism was my first step reading. He said, when you finish that, then we'll talk about it. Now, you notice he ain't said he was my sponsor yet. Because see, John had two pigeons at the time I came into his life. One was a guy out of, out of, out of, um Greystone. Me and him was the same sober time. He might have been a couple of weeks before me. And now he was, he was clinically known to be insane. But we were like boxy twins for John. Both of us were cuckoo me I put on the front he just showed it was true you know Um, and John was trying to help us both and he was giving us both information to read and to study and and I was somewhat defiant but I kept at it and I would come to John and I would would get a little upset because I would watch John give him a little extra attention that I wanted because I was thirsty at this point I, I didn't want to drink anymore I wanted what he had and I was willing to do whatever he told me to do and I was doing it what happened about six months into it the guy who, who who he was sponsoring ended up getting a cut on his arm where he tried to jump a fence and it slid his arm open. And he was sitting in the meeting with a, a, a gouging wound. And John kept asking him and pleading with him. We tried to get him in the car to take him to the hospital, but he wouldn't go. A couple of weeks later, he was dead. Six months sober. And John looked at me and I looked at John and and I knew John wanted to say the only difference between you and him Is he wanted it more. And I don't know if it was his his mental illness that drove him to that point. Because, you know, we got some MDs in in AA. You know, don't don't take your stuff. You know, we got all kinds of different stuff. And some people do abuse that stuff, and they should be corrected. But this guy was clinically sick. And I don't know if that drove him or not. But the point is, that's none of my business. The point is, it's real hard for me to be honest with you, to tell you that was none of my business. And I would have took that emotional moment. And would have fell out in the middle of the meeting, sharing about how my co spouse died. <laughs> and y'all find me at the liquor store. It had nothing to do with him. The stuff I was feeling had nothing to do with him. And the funny thing that John did during that time period, he didn't allow me to use it. He got me back to work. Sicko. We got in the doctor's opinion. I was studying the doctor's opinion. I got down to that part where he says, drink for effect. After years of being told, don't drink and go to meetings, I told him, I never drank for the fact, I like the taste. And then when I told him my story, he mad, she said, you mean to tell me you liked the taste of corn whiskey when you were nine? How do you get honest about that? I didn't know what liquor should taste like at nine. So I knew the truth wasn't about the drinking. As I look back over my life, I can honestly tell you that the way he challenged me consistently was always challenging my mind. He told me my first step consisted of two things. And that's all he wanted me to focus on. He said, cause I, I, you know, me being black and charismatic and Pentecostal, see, when I was working my first step, I was sharing John, you know, and, and I recognized how God is coming into my life. And John said, whoa, 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 we'll get to that. Right now, you sick. (laughs) (laughs) And and you need to understand what your problem is. Cause for years, don't forget, now I've been coming around eight, for those who don't know, I was at this point, I've been coming around AA since 1980. I was a chronic relapser for 14 years at this point. I thought I knew how to get sober and to stay sober. So I was defying in a lot of things that John was trying to share with me. And I didn't get it. So what happened was he told me to focus on the physical and the mental throughout the whole first step. So he showed, for me, the message that worked for me, as you read the 12 and 12, for those who read the commentary, what, he, what, it, what like in the synopsis it talks about different ways people get here. Who can admit complete defeat? Why must every AA hit bottom? The one that worked for me was the mental obsession along with the craving. That worked for me. It, it 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 answered things for me. Like I used to always wonder, like when I was in my late teens and early 20s, why is it that every time I would go get a double of bourbon, I got drunk? And John, as he began to explain the phenomenon of craving as it's outlined in the doctor's opinion for me, then I started going, oh, yeah. Especially that part where it talks about you'll repeat this habit over and over again. Come up with a firm resolution not to do it. And after you succumb, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And you needed a psychic change. And John was very challenging because he was an educated man. See, he had a degree in chemical engineering. I had a degree in back alley chemistry.
0: <laughs> so we were we were suitable.
1: You know, and we were, we were a, a couple of guys who were not normally mixed. You know, and there he was educating me in the idea of what these steps had for me. And, and I needed education because, see, I neglected formal education. For those who may not know, I never graduated high school. I never, never went to, you know, never went to college or none of that stuff. I never had, never took the opportunity to participate in that manner. I never had to. I'm a grunt. See, I'll shove a boo-boo for five dollars an hour all day. <laughs> but that's not the, to make an excuse for what I didn't do. But what the point I'm trying to make is, is that here was a man trying to give me some information that I neglected. And I didn't like it. It was painful. You know how painful it is to be an adult and don't understand something? and try to put on that alcoholic front, even sober. You know what I mean? And John was seeing through that stuff. And so what happened is as he opened up this first step for me, I started realizing by the time I got to there's a solution that it was true. For James, there was no middle-of-the-road solution. I either was going to continue to go on to the bitter end, trying to blot out this so-called miserable, poor past I had, or I was going to set the program as it was laid out. By the time I got the more about alcoholism, I got pissed off because John revealed more about alcoholism to me as relapse prevention. He showed me that I can have the kind of attitude because most people think alcoholists don't have any willpower. We got a lot of willpower. You ever took your first drink in the morning and felt like it was going to come up and went, oh, that takes some serious willpower. You feel that alcohol hit your neck right here, and you never want to come up, but you Oh. <laughs> that's some serious willpower you think that that joker who was working for that company he was probably making good money he's probably making real good money and with the kind of ego that we had he probably said if I lose this job I'll lose everything I've ever worked for and he made his mind up not to drink Few, 20 so years later 4 years dead so I knew just not drinking and going to meetings wasn't going to cut it at this point point. and John started to explain that to me he by- by showing me my own past. How many times I come into meetings and just sat there? And just assuming that through hypnosis I would, y'all, you know, that guy with 20 years of brush me? And I'll just float into AA? You know, I got it But I didn't want to never do what you did to get what you got. So John's doing this now. The second step was never a difficult step for me. I- I- I didn't suffer from atheism, I suffered from agnosticism. I always knew God loved you, but I wasn't sure about me. Even when I was sitting churches like my grandmother and them did, thinking that I would get touched the way they got touched to experience what they experienced, and I went into church with the same delusion I came into AA with. If I'm just where you're at, it'll happen to me. And grandma and them was serving other people and they were, they were, you know, clean us up after we done did stuff in our pants and stuff. You know? I was 15 years old and I went out with a group of guys and we got drunk and I stumbled <laughs> home in the dead of summer. And I don't know how I made it to the apartment. And my, my grandmother and my Aunt Janet and my mother found me at the bottom of the step laying in my own puke. And if my head wasn't resting on that bottom step, I probably would have drowned in it at 15 years old. But yet, God who? So just like the book told me, we the agnostic and in, 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 in spiritual experiences, that it was my thinking. It was my belligerent denial. It was my ability to know that my form of thinking was soft and mushy. And I will always throw my hands up in doubt and say I don't know. James, why you keep doing what you're doing? Uh-huh. Imagine thirty years old. Mm. Thirty five. I mean, just and then and then when and then when I wanted to do what I wanted to do, here was the direction. I'm angry at my wife because she's taking my money. She ain't taking it. I'm giving it to her. and I'm catching my sponsor at the, at the meeting. John, I need to talk to you. What's the matter? She did it again. John said, "What's she do?" I said, "Man, I'm working two and a half jobs. I got a side business, man, and I ain't I got to borrow money for gas." John said, "Well, why do you keep money for gas?" I don't know. <laughs> for three years, I did that. For three years, sober. One day, John said. I said, John, I really need to talk to you after the meeting. John said, okay. Get out in the parking lot. Now I gotta set the scene. It's a cold, crispy winter night. You know, the one where the wind hits you, you just go, ooh, like that. And I'm waiting for him, you know, and I gotta, I gotta share, you know, I gotta, cause I, I learned a long time ago, AA ain't for dumping. It ain't for me to come in here and poo-poo over you. And then get mad cause you called me a pigeon. Because that's how I was acting. And so John waited. John came out. i waited waiting for him underneath the light. And John says, what's bothering you, James? I go, man, I came from work, man. You know, and she going to dump all these bills on me, man. And, you know, I, I ain't got all this money, man. I ain't got nothing, man. I can't even fix my car. John said, don't do it anymore. And I went, well, let me explain. He go, I don't want to have him hear it. And walked away. Now, if you got an ego like mine, I'm thinking in my mind, yeah, didn't they tell me in AA to fire him? You know, I'm mad. I'm really burnt up. I'm hot. Now, if you ever been to Union Hill, or I, was, I call it other things, but we shit at in the parking lot. Um, but anyway, in, in Union Hill, they got two driveways. You don't have to go where I'm at. He gets in his car. I'm, you know, cause I'm angry. You know, our anger is serious anger. So he want to explain this to me, you know? So I'm standing under the streetlight like this, you know? He didn't talk to me. So he'd go get in his car. He could have went out the other way. He drove by like this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> As the
1: girls would say, <coughs> I was hot. Hot. I'm talking, I ain't calling him no more. Forgive him. Da-da-da-da-da. But when I went home that night, I worked all week. Two jobs and a half. What detailing cars. Detail work is hard. I made extra money so I could pay for my car and and take care of my family because I was trying to be responsible. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm buying respect from my own wife. Instead of earning it. And I didn't know that then. And she said, Well here it is. And I paid it, paid it, paid it, paid it. Got to a certain point I said, Fold? She said, well, what about this? I said, what about it? She cursed me out. I went to the meeting. A little lighter. (laughs) I'm scared because I don't know if she's going to let me in. I'm telling y'all the truth. And the reason that that fear was so dominant is because, see, if y'all anything like I am, remember saying, I promise I'll be home on Friday right after work, honey. And go stop at the bar. Saturday night about 2 or 3 in the morning because you misplaced your keys and she go who is it me and it was that kind of fear to tell her no and then I go to the meeting and I'm feeling a little lighter and I knew what I had to face when I got back home but I knew that I'd done the best I could not what you demanded because I would do remember what I told you in the beginning I would do anything to get you to like me drunk or sober and I figured because I had a little incident in my life not little I had an incident where I had relapsed in my, in, my, in my relationship with her and she was making me pay for it just like it says in the family afterwards she felt like she had a mortgage and anytime she didn't feel like she needed to do something she put it on me and I needed a sponsor I needed a sober man to teach me how to be a man And when I came in that meeting that night, I sat down, and John said, how you feel? Good. He said, you got gas money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. "Yeah, I got gas money. They said, you know, after the meet, we're going to the diner. And I was, for the first time, able to buy my sponsor a cup of coffee and a sandwich. And I knew that I had handled my responsibilities, because the light bill company wasn't saying they were going to shut anything off. Now at this time, she was making more money than me. But yet, I was spending every dime I had. For what reason? If a, if a mental ill patient couldn't pay a bill in the house, would you hate them? Just like the book says, one can have cancer and all feel sorry for them. This is not so for the alcoholic. And that's what I was going through. But how do I conduct myself properly? That's where sponsorship come in. If it wasn't for these steps, I wouldn't, and somebody who had done them before me, I wouldn't know when to apply them. So by this point now, I'm starting to feel a little lighter. And and step three is doing what it's supposed to do for me by this point. It's really doing some stuff for me. Because after I had done it, I was able to go back to it and see how God had just demonstrated himself through me because I was terrified of her. And just like it told me in the book, fear should be classed with stealing. And I was robbing myself of my own personal ability to have some dignity about myself. Here I was, trying to be sober and conduct myself properly, but I'm acting like I got no dignity, no, re- no self-respect, And this poor man for years, been trying to give me some form of self-respect, and I for the first time, stood up and acted right. I didn't have that idea. Um, let me disclaim that. It wasn't my idea. It was taught to me. And my fiance is back in the crowd tonight, and she'll tell you, I never make a promise to her I can't keep. That's the God and truth before man and God. I'll let her first get upset with me, and you're going to do
0: it.
1: <laughs> and I said, honey, I would love to promise it to you, but I can't promise that. But if I promise it, I'll bend over backwards to try to see it through. Now, I'm not saying that because she's in the room. I say that because, like it says in the book, I need God to bear witness for me, and the only witness that I have that's one of his is her. I'm sorry, that was kind of mushy. <laughs> but I love her. And for the first time in life, my sponsor taught me love. I watched my sponsor's divorced wife stand in the meeting, sober the same time as him, put her arm around him after years of divorce and said, if it wasn't for this man, I wouldn't be standing here tonight. And I want to tell you I love you and thank you. And I'm sitting there going. (laughs) But I wanted that. And I can honestly tell you today that I carry myself with dignity with my divorced wife. I don't let it push me around, but I I treat it with respect and dignity. All I'm trying to do is the reason I stepped away from what I was talking about is because I'm trying to tell you how important sponsorship is in so many ways. Because we always hear about it when it always comes down to the steps. But I could not have experienced that if this man had never experienced that. If he never knew what it was to be one of God's babies and walk through life on life's terms by using the principles as they're laid out, I wouldn't have never had that. I stand here today telling you I'm no longer... You know, running around with the kind of anger that I felt. And the other night I was in a meeting and some wise guy was talking about, you know, how it's big book people, you know, always quoting the book and this, that, and the other. But the only reason I quote the book is because I didn't have that truth. The, The truth was in the first 164 pages. It was never mine. So the only truth that I really know to share with you is the truth that I read. And I can almost guarantee you, if you have a sponsor that got the experience of the 12 steps and they introduce you to them and walk you through those steps, it's up to you. How fast you want to do them. I had a guy tell me, why are you rushing through the steps so fast? You ain't got to take that long. I remember asking John Stern, how soon should steps be done? He said, how soon you want to get better? <laughs> and, I, and again, one of those, Who? you know, like kind of, I didn't think of that question. You know, I never thought that that would arise. So what I'm trying to tell you in so many words, and I bring it to a close, is that I'm grateful that, that, that I could come up to a podium and tell you the God and truth about my life. There was a time where I would have to stand here and, and in my own mind, figure what would you be thinking of me as I'm talking. I don't need to do that anymore because I live the truth the best way I know how. The only truth I know is my own. The only story I can tell you is my own. The reason I'm trying to stay away from talking about my past issues, for years i talked about the hardships of my coming up in AA. But the truth of the matter is I still call John Stern to this day. I moved out of the area from northern New Jersey down to Middlesex, central Jersey. I called John, what, a couple times with my honey? He's going to always be my sponsor. If John was drunk or sober, he'll still be my ebby. That man carried a message to me with a beaming look in his eye that I will never forget to this day. And if he was standing here next to me, you would see two people that that would not normally mix. You would look at him and say, what the heck he doing with him? And you'll wonder why I'm listening to him. But the truth of the matter is, is that I don't know why God chose that man as the one that had the message for me. So if you have chosen a sponsor, you have to ask yourself a question. Why? If you had the answers on how to stay sober, you wouldn't have never asked that guy to help you. So why get in the middle of it and then all of a sudden, because like they said, there's some of these we balked. You know, why wait to the balking point to say, well, I'm not sure if I want Jim to sponsor me now because Jim says stand up straight and walk like you want one of God's babies. I tell you the God and honest truth that for me today, I can say I'm living one part of the book. I know I live truthfully. And that's the part where it says, as God's children, we stand on our feet and we crawl before no one. And if I'm painstaking about that phase of my development, you will be amazed as well as I am before I'm halfway through. Mm -hmm. And most of the time when I sponsor somebody, that's what I see. That's why when a guy come up to me and say, "Jane, will you be my sponsor? I go, why? He said, because I'm an alcoholic. I said, how do you know? He said, I drink a lot. I said, I breathe a lot. Don't make me an air addict. Because I noticed that what we have today is a very popular thing. And yes, as it says in the forward to the first edition, our program has its advantages for all. If you feel that AA is what you need, please stay. That's why I like, you know, there's a girl in our, in, our, in our Friday night big book study that started a trend with me. Right after we say the Lord's Prayer, other people say, keep coming back, it works when you're working. She simply say, stay. And one day she said that and it just kind of stayed with me. And I remember in AA, if you use something three times, you can claim it. So the next time you're sitting in the meeting, you know, and you hear that, you know, think about it. You know, I hear people say, anybody new coming, anybody, anybody coming back? I'll be hoping for them to say, anybody decide to stay? Anybody considering on leaving? You know, I think we should add that. Because I know there was times in my early recovery where I would be sitting there thinking, do I really want to do this? Am I really ready for this? And like our book says, reread it up to that point. Hopefully you won't throw it away i like to take a moment to say I, I, I hope that I kind of explained to you some of the things that my sponsor had allowed me to experience, not only in my drinking past, but also in my present. And I love John Stern. I'm going to say it out loud to you. I love him. And I mean that from my heart. Because he didn't have to do what he did. He didn't have to. Just like he told me that night, no, he could admit no. But he didn't. He simply went with what God put in his heart. And today I stand before you. A man who had not drank or drugged or used any minor chemical since June 11th of 1994. Simply because God demonstrated himself through another man. I tell you, do not fight this thing. Please, if you can. If you do, we don't care. If I have said, (laughs) done, and behaved in a manner at this podium by which you found unacceptable, I want to ask you your forgiveness. Because if you have the power to judge, you also have the power to forgive. If you don't like what I said at the podium, I see you in the parking lot. <laughs> Especially her. Not that, I want to wish you all a, a very happy sobriety. I hope I brought you a typical message of sponsorship. I hope that I get an opportunity to do it again. It's always a pleasure, brother. Thank you for the opportunity. God bless you <laughs>